In Mark chapters 11 to 12, our Lord is uh, attacked by many people. We have seen how the Sanhedrin, Sadducees, Pharisees, Herodians have all taken their turn to oppose him and all have failed. Here in Mark chapter 12, verses uh, 28 to 34, it is the turn of a scribe. The parallel account in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 5, reveals that this scribe was a Pharisee. And the Pharisaical party sent this scribe to tempt Christ. That is, to entrap him so that he would say something wrong and they would accuse him. This scribe's trap is concerning Christ's understanding of the law of God. And as we see our Lord's answer, it reveals the very heartbeat of law. The answer teaches us Christians how we are to grow in obedience. And the answer also reveals there are some people on earth who are not far from the kingdom of God. So let us look at this section under three headings. One, the first and great commandment. Two, the second great commandment. Three, the scribe who is not far from the kingdom. This scribe has been listening as Jesus Christ debated the Sadducees concerning the resurrection of the dead. The scribe believes in the resurrection of the dead and believes Jesus Christ answered the Sadducees well. But he has a question of his own. And in verse 28, the second part, which is the first commandment of all? Now when you see the word first, the scribe is not saying, Jesus, do you know what the first of the Ten Commandments is? No, first means priority. What is the most important commandment of all? Or as Matthew records it in chapter 22 verse 36, Master, what is the great commandment of the law? So what is the most important commandment in the Bible? The Jews counted how many commandments there were in the Old Testament. And they counted it to 613 commandments. They then divided and subdivided and subdivided each commandment with further interpretation, instruction and application. The end result was books after books, pages after pages of hair-splitting commandments. And then they would categorize all these innumerable commandments. What's more important, less important? What's greater, what's lesser? What's weightier, what's 
lighter. And they would all debate among each other which commandment is greater than the next, which, which commandment has priority over another. And we see in Matthew 23 the outcome of this where Christ says, all your laws, all your commandments attached to the 613 are burdensome for the people of God. And then we see in Matthew 23, verse 16, where it's basically expositing, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Swear by the temple, it is nothing, but whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. So how do you keep the third commandment? Well, if you take an oath according to the temple, that's lesser in weight than if you take an oath swearing to the gold of the temple. See how ridiculous it became? But as the Jews had this great theological debate, which is the most important? The scribe comes to Christ and says, O Master, tell us, What is the most important commandment of all? And our Lord gives his answer. Verse 29. And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Many of you will recognize this is a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5. It's what's called the Shema. The Shema is simply Hebrew for hear. The Jews loved the Shema. To this day, they pray and confess the Shema in their morning and evening prayers as they have their phylacteries, a little box containing the Shema, tied to their heads. And if you've ever had Jewish neighbours or visited Jewish homes, you will know that outside every Jewish home in the top right corner is a little box, and within this little box contains the Shema. And the Shema is the Old Testament's confession of faith. There is only one God and there is no other. And this one God is the Lord, Jehovah, the covenant God of Israel. Jehovah alone is the creator of heaven and earth, and you and me and everything. Jehovah alone is the governor of providence, managing everything according to his wisdom and power. Jehovah alone is the redeemer of his people as he forgives our sin through sacrifice. And this, brother and sister, is our confession of faith too, because we are true spiritual Jews. And Jehovah is one, but he's not one in person. He's one in being, one in nature, but three in person. God the Father is the one Jehovah. 
Jehovah incarnate, Jesus Christ is the one Jehovah. And the Spirit of Jehovah, the Holy Ghost, is the one Jehovah. So this is our confession of faith too. Jehovah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one God. And the greatest, the priority, the number one commandment of all is that we love Jehovah as God. The Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God. This is the great commandment. Be honest, brother and sister. When I asked you before the reading of the commandments, what comes to your mind when you think the law of God? What comes to your mind when you think the commandments of God? Where here Jesus Christ is saying, when you think about God's law and God's commandments, you should think love. And you see, we don't often do that. That's because we separate the law from God. And so the law becomes this impersonable statute book. But when you have a right view of law, that is the law of God is simply the revelation of God's character. So when you think law, you must automatically think God, his holiness, his justice, his goodness. And therefore, when you think God, you should think love. So if you have a wrong view of God's law, you need to learn to unite God with his law. But why is the greatest commandment to be to love the Lord our God? First of all, it's the greatest because it really gets to the heart of the issue. True obedience to God's law begins inwardly and not externally. We all know the problem of the scribes and the Pharisees. Their understanding of obedience of God's law began externally. We looked at Mark chapter 7, time ago, where the Pharisees and the scribes would honour God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They would love to obey God's law according to external standards, but they would omit the internal obedience. Christ chastens them in Matthew 23, 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe and mint and anise and cumin, external obedience. And have omitted the weightier, the more important matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Internal. Being a new father, it's easy to see this in a child. Because young children have not learned to hide their facial expressions. And yes, sometimes young children love to obey their parents, but sometimes they do want to obey you whatsoever. And they may finally externally do what you command them, but their face 
makes all manner of expressions revealing internally they do not want to obey your commandments. And so love is teaching us that true obedience to God's law does not begin externally, but internally. That expresses itself outwardly in the external obedience. But the second reason why this is the greatest is because love shows us that devotion is central to obedience. It's not just do things. It's out of devotion to God and who he is, you therefore obey him. Think even of horizontal. How are we to... uh, uh, Reflect being Christians one to another. Well, it's not enough to do anything except as rooted in love. 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And so love and love for God says first and foremost, you're devoted to God and therefore you'll rightly obey him. Matthew Henry comments, love is the leading affection of the soul. The love of God is the leading grace in the renewed soul. Loving God with all our heart will effectually take us off from and arm us against all those things that are rivals with him for the throne in our souls and will engage us to everything by which he may be honoured and with which he will be pleased and no commandment will be grievous where this principle commands and has the ascendant. How will all other idols be uh, uh, rejected? Love to God. And the third reason why the greatest commandment is love to God is because love is the summary of the first table of the law. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. How will we look to trust and hope in and serve the one true God alone? Love will move us to do it. The second commandment says we're only to worship God as he commands and not what anyone else wants. What will make us do this? Love. For we will deny what we like. We will deny our preferences. We will deny our traditions. And we will worship God as he commands. What will move us not to take the name of the Lord God in vain, but to honour, hallow, esteem, respect God's name? Love. And what will make us cease? from all lawful work and recreation and keep the Sabbath day, but love for the living God. And so, brother and sister in Christ, we're called to evangelical obedience. 
that is obedience in Christ, his blood cleansing from any imperfection, but with sincerity by faith in him, obey God. Are you struggling in your Christian obedience? If you're struggling to obey God's commandments, the root problem is not your obedience, but your love for God. Jesus says in John 14, If ye love me, keep my commandments. Are you struggling to keep the Ten Commandments? Are you struggling to obey God? Well, do the first works. Remember, he is the Lord our God, your creator, your governor, your redeemer. Remember what he did for you on the cross. Remember it's not that you love him, but that he loved you and sent his son for you in love to redeem you and let that fill you with a love for God. And then flowing from that love, obeying his commandments. But then Jesus says this love for God is to be with the whole being. We are to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And let us know it is only the regenerate man or woman who will do this. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. So someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who has removed the defilement towards depravity and given you spiritual life to have faith in the Savior, will also work in you a love for God in your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Isn't that wonderful? That none of us here who are born again says we can't do this. Now you can't say I can't do this perfectly and sinlessly, true, but you can do this sincerely and evidently. Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't do this, but if you do have the Spirit, your heart's been circumcised and you're enabled to do it. We're to love God with our hearts. The heart in the Bible does not mean emotions. It includes emotions, but it doesn't mean emotions. The heart represents the whole being of man. Our plans, our purposes, our desires, our longings. Proverbs 4, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. And so it's saying, with your heart, your plans, your purposes, your motives, your desires, your inclinations, love God. When you think of how you're going to live your life, what gets you up in the morning, what moves you, what's motivating your decisions in all of life, let the love of God be at the very seat. Don't let your flesh, don't let worldliness, don't let selfishness be at the driving seat of your life. But let your love of God guide you in all of life. Then the soul. The soul, as we saw last week, is the the spiritual essence and nature of man. We must feed the soul. 
And the soul can only ever be satisfied with God himself. He's given us the means in public worship, private worship, family worship, the reading of the word, prayer. And so how will we have our love satisfied, our soul satisfied? By loving the Lord our God with our souls. Are you spiritually full or famished, brother or sister? If you're famished, it's because you're lacking love. How's your Christian walk with God, brother or sister? If it's lacking, it's because you are not loving God in your soul. You're loving the world. You're loving hobbies. You're loving entertainments. You're loving everything else, but neglecting your soul because you're lacking love. In the words of Christ to the churches of Revelation, repent, repent, and do the first works. Return to your beloved. Return to his grace. Return to his glory. Return to him and love God in your soul and use your soul to find its satisfaction in God alone. Renew your desire for public worship and don't just Come routinely. Renew your desire for prayer. How's your prayer life, brother and sister? When you want to check your temperature, when you want to check your your pulse, you, you test it out. How's your prayer pulse right now? Is it full? Is it wonderful? Is it a sanctuary for you? Is it it a holy sanctuary where you know the presence of Father, Son, and Spirit and time is meaningless and freedom abounds and the means of grace and prayer is true to you with answered prayer and comfort and peace and so on? Go back to your Savior and love Him with your soul. Mind. You're to love God with your mind. Now, we don't really talk that way, do we? We restrict love to emotions. If we're a bit more biblical, maybe the will. But the Bible says we are to love God with our minds. The Bible's full of the mind. Paul says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says in Philippians chapter 2, brother and sister, have the mind of Christ. He says in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above. And Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 says, guard up the loins of your mind. Your mind is to love God. This is no mere intellectual pursuit. But it's a mind that engages with God through his word, delights to contemplate and think and meditate on God, that produces Christian obedience and ends with a mind 
that adores and worship God? Are you loving God with your mind? Or are you a mindless Christian? I think it's David, I can't remember if it's David Wells or Mark Knoll, one of the two um, evangelical scholars who say the problem of evangelicalism in the last hundred years is that it's a mindless form of Christianity. It's all about feelings and experiences and doctrine and theology and study and meditation is not important. Well, Jesus Christ rebukes such a mindless Christianity. Are you reading the Word? Are you studying the Word? Are you growing in doctrine and theology? If not, you're failing to love God with the mind. You might use your mind for the family or for school or for any other lawful pursuit. But if you are not using your God-given mind to love God and study God and think God's thoughts after him and apply that to your life, you're sinning against him and not loving God. So brother and sister in Jesus Christ, love God with your mind. Give the best of your thinking, the best of your understanding, the best of your study, the best of your contemplations for the pursuit and knowledge of your God. And then it says the strength. The strength is the exertion and energy of the will. You're giving your best to God, not the dregs. When it comes to your priorities here, God's got the best. But then he says here, loving God is your priority. This is the first and greatest commandment of all. There are priorities in the commandments of God. There are weightier and greater commandments. It doesn't mean you neglect any. It just simply means that some are more priority than others. And loving God is your priority over loving neighbor. Loving God is first, loving neighbor is second. The first table of the law is first, the second table of the law is second. And this has been lost today in the church. What grieves you more What upsets you more? What are you more offended at? Someone committing idolatry and not worshipping God and worshipping something else? Or someone literally committing sexual adultery? Idolatry is a greater sin because idolatry is first. Someone who worships God according to their own desires or tradition or someone who's a thief and steals from your home. Someone who does not worship God as God is commanded is a greater sinner than the thief 
Someone who takes God's name in vain and blasphemes his name and uses the name of Christ as a, as a curse word, as a, as a word. Or someone who commits murder. Taking the name of God in vain is a greater sin than murder. Someone who breaks the Sabbath day and goes to a restaurant to eat and goes to buy things on the internet or in a store. Or someone on so-called Super Bowl Sunday goes home and watches the Super Bowl. Or someone who's a false witness and lies in life or in the courthouse. Sabbath breaking is the greater sin. This is lost today. We are more upset and grieved because of second table violations in the nation than we are first table violations. And the root is we are loving neighbor above loving God. And you think about Christians in politics and they never talk about how politicians are sinning and promoting sin in the most grievous way possible by openly and publicly violating the first table of the law and will vote for them because they might have good things to say about the second table. You're contributing to sin. We need to obey Paul's exhortation in 2 Corinthians 10. We are to have every thought to the obedience of Christ. And Christ says this is the first and greatest commandment to love God. This is our priority. Our forefathers knew this. And they were grieved at first table violations. And now we don't even look Someone in a TV program says something and blasphemes the name of Jesus. Not that big a deal. Someone we know breaks the Sabbath. Well, hey, maybe their theology is not quite orthodox. Who cares? They sin. Just because you've got theology wrong does not make sin not sin. We need to think correctly and prioritize God in our lives. Is God the priority of your personal life? Is God the priority in my personal life? In everything I have, my resources, my time, my energy, my love, my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, is God my priority? Make God your priority, brother and sister. Make him number one. Make his glory the most pressing thing in your conscience. And anything inside yourself, in your own life, as well as anything in society, when it violates that glory, rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. But then secondly, and very interestingly, Christ doesn't stop. The scribe only asked Jesus for the first and greatest. But Christ continues to explain the second. He says in verse 31, 
And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Isn't that interesting? Why did Jesus not just answer the first, but then answer the second? I think for three reasons. The first reason is the law of God is inseparable. You may distinguish, you may prioritize, but the law of God is inseparable. In James chapter 2 verse 10, Whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all the law. And so you can't separate the first four from the second six. It's one law. And so therefore Christ feels it's a necessity to teach the second greatest as well as the first. The second reason is to stop hypocrisy. There are many people who act all pious, they love God, and they're so mean to everyone else. The Pharisees were experts at this, and the scribes were experts at this. We'll read later on how the scribes make long prayers. They were very religious and devoted in external religion. But when it came to how they treated people, just read Matthew 23 and all the woes. So if anyone says they love God but don't love neighbor, they don't love God. And the third reason is this. If we are to love God, we love everything about God, do we not? We love his word, we love his day, we love his worship, and we love his image bearers. Every man, woman, and child, fallen, saved, or unsaved, are all made in the image of God. And so if you love God, you'll see God's image and therefore you will love that image bearer. And so we are all called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And love is the again the very center of how we keep the second table of the law. Romans chapter 13 says in verse Nine, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. If there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So how will you obey parents? How will you protect life and not murder? How will you um, be content and not covet and so on? Love. Love sees someone and says, I only desire to do you good, no harm. And therefore, mother, father, I will honor you and respect you. You will look to someone else and you will want to protect their reputation, enhance their reputation, Um, and therefore there'll be no false witnessing. Or you'll look at someone's property and goods and you praise God for it, you don't desire their harm, and therefore you will not steal nor covet. So how's your Christian evangelical obedience towards people around you? Think of commandments 5 to 10. Are you struggling in any of these ones? If we are, it's because we're lacking love to God and lacking love to neighbor.
And so if you are desiring someone to, if you're, if you're someone who is desiring to be obedient to God and to keep the second table of the law, the key is to love them. Remind yourself they're made in the image of God. That means they have dignity. They have God's stamp upon them. And love them and do them good. But who are we to love? Neighbour. Love thy neighbour. Well, who's your neighbour? It's the wrong question. You're the neighbour. In Luke chapter 10, a scribe, a lawyer, comes to Jesus to test him again. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you tell me. And the man says, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. And Jesus says, Go and do it and you shall live. There's a problem. He can't keep that law. So he wants to lower the law, narrow it so he can keep it. So he says, but who's my neighbour? And Jesus, of course, gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, which you can read in your own time. And at the end, Jesus does not say, love your neighbour. He says, now who is the neighbour in the parable? And the response is, the man who showed mercy was the neighbour. Go do likewise. So it's not who is your neighbour, but you are the neighbour. And therefore, anyone and everyone who comes into your life by providence, you are to be neighbourly towards. You are to love them and do them good. But what if there's an enemy? What if someone's an anti-Christian, rabid, hateful person? You love them. You love them. Matthew 5. Your Father in heaven loves his enemies, therefore you love your enemies. Your Father in heaven causes the sun to shine and the rain to go towards the unjust and the evil. Therefore, pray for them and do them good. How do you treat your neighbour? Do you love them? Or do you hate them? Let me be more particular. It's an easy way to speak about work colleagues when you don't have them around you. Are you loving them or hating them? Or what about people in your family when they're not in your midst and you're in another midst of another group? Are you hating them or loving them? Or what about politicians? They have anti-Christian ideals. They're opposed to the church. But are you loving them or are you hating them? We are called to radical love. It is a sin to fail to love neighbour. And I feel convicted by that. And I hope the Spirit of God is convicting you by that. And repentance is not feeling bad. The world fe- Repentance is sorrow over your sin are turning to Christ and his mercy for forgiveness and new obedience. Let us learn to love our neighbour and not hate them. In Christ summarise, he says that the uh, verse 31, sorry, there is none other commandment greater than these. So here you go. Get your list of priorities straight. Number one, love God. Number two, love his neighbour. 
How does the scribe respond? It's quite amazing, actually. Look at verses 32 to 33. The scribe completely agrees. He says, Master, this is truth. I'm not rejecting what you've said. I completely affirm what you have said as the truth. There is only one God. He is Jehovah. And true religion, true obedience, true understanding of the law is not outward external obedience to this Jehovah, but is to love him. And anyone who loves God but loves not neighbor is a hypocrite and is false. So I agree, Master, to love your neighbor is essential. And then he goes one step further. Loving God is greater than all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. This man gets it. He knows the marrow of true religion. He knows in Psalm 51 where David prays that God does not desire the sacrifices and then it says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. He knows 1 Samuel 15, hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of Lord. He understands Hosea 6, 6, that to show mercy is better than sacrifices. He gets true religion. And then Christ commends him. Christ says, you have acted discreetly. Discreetly here is not how we use the English word. It simply means to be someone who has right thinking and understanding. That's the Greek word. His thinking and understanding about God is spot on. It's true. It's orthodox. And then he commends him further. You are not far from the kingdom of God. You are so, so close to salvation. You're inches away. The way you think, the way you, you understand your view of God, your theology, your doctrine is spot on. You're not far from the kingdom of God. So come closer. Step into it. Be saved. He's not far, but he's not in either. And he's not in the kingdom for two reasons. First of all, he needs faith. Right understanding, right thinking towards God and about God and his word and doctrine is not enough. Assenting and agreeing to the truth of God is not enough. It must be accompanied by faith. The kingdom of God is not someone who can look at food 
knows its texture, colour, and knows about its taste. If I was to taste this, I know it will taste like this. Kingdom of God is you've tasted it yourself. It is Psalm 34. You have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. It's not just that you know about God. You know about Christ. You know about goodness. You know about grace. You know about love. That's not enough. You must experience that yourself by faith. Do you know about God's love or do you know God's love by experience? Do you know about doctrine or do you know God through doctrine by experience? This man falls short. But he falls short as well because he hasn't got faith in Jesus Christ. The next section, which we'll cover next week, Christ immediately speaks to the scribes and says, Psalm 110, who is the Messiah? He's the Son of God. Faith in Jesus as the Son of God saves. Or another way of putting it, Romans chapter 10. The Jews, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Have not, sorry, submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. When I was expositing the great commandment, did you not notice I left something out? I left out the word all. We are to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And none of us have ever done that. Not one of us has sinlessly and perfectly all our being loved God. And therefore the law of God as a covenant of works condemns every single man, woman and child and condemns this scribe. And this man should not simply know the truth about the law but must know his own sinfulness. And then look to the one and the only one who has loved God sinlessly and perfectly with all his heart, soul, mind and strength. As Psalm 40 says, speaking of the Messiah, Hebrews 10, that Jesus Christ had the law in his bowels because he loved God so even to bear his wrath and do his will as a sacrifice for sinners who break the great commandments. And so this man, you are not far. You're very close. You get it. Your thinking, your theology, your doctrine, spot on. But you need to believe in me as your righteousness. Where are you today, my friends? Do you know about God or do you know God? Do you know about mercy or do you know mercy? Do you know about doctrine or do you know Father, Son and Spirit? Do you have an orthodox, spot on understanding 
but have you seen your unrighteousness as, your righteousness as filthy rags? Have you seen you can not keep the great commandment as a covenant of works? Sin in your heart, sin in your soul, sin in your mind, sin in your strength, sin towards God. We have all come short of the glory of God. And therefore, for righteousness, Christ alone is our Savior. Children, children, listen. You're being brought up and taught the truth of Jesus Christ. You've been taught the truth that you're a sinner and you can't work salvation. You must believe in Jesus alone. That's good. But you can't be saved if you simply believe the truth of that teaching. Children, you must believe in Jesus Christ, not simply agree that faith in Christ saves. So dear children, do not simply agree that faith in Christ saves. You yourselves believe in Jesus for righteousness. Let us all not be at the scribe. Let none of us be close to the kingdom, not far from the kingdom, but let us be in the kingdom by faith. And then wonderfully, as we've already exposited, then in Christ, in the kingdom, all sins cleansed, you have the Spirit who enables you to sincerely love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Isn't that beautiful? So now, go on, brother and sister, increasing in your love for God, and you will keep the law. Let us pray.